Pastor Xavier Reese adds up the cost of discipleship. There's animosity against the gospel. When you become very specific, very narrow, very exclusive, you will not be tolerated. We're seeing it more and more in our nation. You can believe in anything. You can say you worship Satan and they'll, oh great, that's good. Reincarnation, oh that's great. But you mention the name of Jesus and people go crazy. You're not tolerated. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. Think and grow rich. How to win friends and influence people. The secret. It seems there are plenty of self-help strategies men continue to come up with to become, quote, successful. But among the various business models appropriate for the corporate world, there is just one book to adequately prepare for eternity, God's book, the Bible. And so in today's Simple Truths message, Pastor Xavier offers a list of nine spiritual characteristics that are key operatives in God's economy. There are many things that are being taught today as characteristics of an effective ministry, and often they are the model of the corporate world and management. The principles are those of the worldly system. Delegation, administration, many things like that. And yet, as you look at the gospel and you see the ministry of Jesus, he taught many of those things, but he gives the grace and the spiritual gifts and the ability to fulfill what he wants to do. Whenever we get to the place we think we've got it wired with certain methodologies or certain things, then we become the ones who are controlling the church. You understand? There's only one head to the church of Jesus Christ, and that's Christ himself. And the only motivation that he honors for us to do work for him is agape love. For him and for the sinner or the saint that we serve. If the people of God would study and use only the Bible as its only source for life and practice for the church, then we would not be so impressed with the worldly models. Jesus certainly wasn't impressed. Do you think the Roman Empire impressed Jesus? Of course not. Yet he did rebuke the Christian for not being a wise and diligent steward as the worldly persons there in the parable of the unjust steward in Luke 16. And he, he told the believer to learn from the unbeliever to invest but in the true riches of the kingdom of God. The non-believer prepares for here, here and now, that's it. We prepare him for the eternity. Paul's ministry we've seen at Corinth provided for us a way that a person can know that God is leading ministry. Now we come to Ephesus and we want to look at the fruitful ministry of Paul at Ephesus in order to observe here and glean nine characteristics that were present in the church in order that we might be wise and diligent overseers of the church of Jesus Christ in ministry. The lessons and principles are eternal for the church regarding the pattern of leadership. Because I've told you over and over again, the book of Acts is a pattern for leadership. The first characteristic we find in verses 1 through 7, it is simply this. The people were taught and filled with the Holy Spirit. Let me read here. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, 
Into what then were you baptized? So they said, into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized you with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him. That is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all. So the first characteristic is that people were taught and filled with the Holy Spirit. This section is interesting. Notice verse 1 through 3. Paul the Apostle returned to Ephesus on his third missionary journey now. And Paul, having passed through the upper coast here, the region, he came to Ephesus. This is the less traveled route of the Kaiser Valley. And he came that way. And Paul found here some disciples. Now, the term disciple, as you know, means student, a pupil. Every time this term is used in the book of Acts, it's always used for a Christian. Never for a non-Christian. Okay? It's always a Christian, a believer. There are those who say that these disciples were not born again. I think they're wrong. I think the context bears this out, first of all, by the term, and then what we're going to see here, which is very important. Look at verse 2. The Apostle Paul asked these disciples a question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, Let's be perfectly clear. Every person, when they repent and accept the Lord Jesus Christ, they receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes in them, Jesus said. That's one of the three prepositions. The Holy Spirit comes in you. He's with you, in you, and then upon you, okay? So the minute you're born again, the Spirit comes in you. The question, notice, is about the empowerment or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Not water. The context is clear. Jesus said, you will receive the baptism, Acts 1.5. Terry in Jerusalem to you being due with power from on high for service, Acts 1.8. Right? The question is very, very clear. He's asking about the Holy Spirit, not water baptism. The Greek indicates, they tell us here, receiving at a definite point in time at conversion. Simultaneously, this is the arrest participle, the Greek scholars tell us. They were believers. John was preaching what? The Messiah to come. You have the intertestamental period. John began the New Testament. All did prophesy until John the Baptist. Now, notice these disciples in response expressed their ignorance about the Holy Spirit. We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And without doubt, since the context is about the, the Holy Spirit, when they believed... He's talking about the Pentecostal experience. We've seen it in Samaria. We've seen it in the house of Cornelius, right? And all of a sudden, this is the connection. They only knew the baptism of John. Water. The baptism of Jesus is the Holy Spirit. In fact, they came out to John the priest and everything. He says, are you Elijah? No, are you John the Baptist? No, I, who are you? I am the voice crying in the wilderness. And he tells his disciples, I baptize you with water. But there's one among you whose shoelaces I'm not worthy of losing. He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Two distinct baptisms. Look at verse 4. Paul the Apostle taught them the distinction between the baptism of John and the baptism of Jesus. Paul confirms to them the ministry and baptism of John the Baptist. Paul said, John indeed baptized you with the baptism of repentance. John himself taught the difference as I've told you uh, first chapter of John 19 through 28 you can get that in the other gospels also then Paul points out 
that the message of John was Jesus. John declared to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, the Messiah. John identifies Jesus as that long-awaited Messiah. That is, on Christ Jesus. John the Baptist was preaching the coming of Messiah. And they were believing in faith of the Messiah's arrival. Now notice what he says in verse 5 through 7. Paul the Apostle then rebaptizes them. Now watch. Verse 5, when they heard this, they were baptized in water in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then, when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Certainly, Paul, when he's asking the question, is not talking about water baptism, because baptism doesn't save us. It's a public confession. It doesn't forgive any sin. 1 Peter 3, 19-21. It's just a testimonial that you're born again. It comes after birth. And here again by the context, all of a sudden they speak in tongues and prophesy. The tense is the imperfect. They kept on speaking and prophesying. The very context makes it clear that the manifestation here verifies the subject of Paul's question. It was the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, the baptism. Now I don't care what you call it, just so you have it. And it's not a one-time experience. Ephesians 5.18 says, keep on keeping on being filled with the Spirit of God. The ministry to be effective People must be taught and filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul tells the Galatians, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now going to be made perfect in the flesh? No. It's got to be a continuous work of the Spirit of God. This is where we fail as believers. When we don't stay connected with the Lord, we don't trust Him, and we think we can start doing it ourselves. We get defeated. Notice the second characteristic comes in verse 8 and 9. The people were preached to and taught the gospel consistently. It says, And he went into the synagogue and he spoke boldly for three months and reasoned and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. Now, notice Paul the Apostle as his custom was, he goes into the synagogue again to evangelize. They have the word of God. He is very bold. He is not intimidated. He is not frightened. He is very bold in the Lord as he's preaching the gospel. He's a Jew. He loves the Jews. His motivation is that they be saved. And so he always goes there. And the idea here is a freedom of speech without any reservation. And we see Paul's custom all the time through the book of Acts. Now notice Paul did this by reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. The word reasoning means to think different things with oneself, to mingle thoughts and discourse with one. And so you're dialoguing, that's the word it comes from. And the result of that is persuading, which means to induce one to believe. This is the product of the process. The process is the dialogue, and the product is the understanding, the persuasion. He takes the scriptures, he says, here's what Isaiah says. Here's the Messiah. Here's what Deuteronomy says. Here's Messiah. And he's, he's dialoguing. He's going back and forth. Notice the subject is regarding the things of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God needs a king, right? Who's the king? The Messiah. Jesus Christ. It is his kingdom. And so Paul argued and convinced from the scriptures that it was Jesus who was Messiah to the Jew. But look at verse 9. Paul the apostle 
teaches now the word of God to believers. The usual response took place in the synagogue. They rejected the gospel. Look at verse 9. The sharp contrast is marked by the word but. The number is indicated. Some were hardened and did not believe. And the word hardened means to be stubborn with disbelief. Here's the danger, guys. You remember Pharaoh? It says, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then it says, and the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Two different Hebrew words. When Pharaoh hardened his heart, he made it abstinent, hard, rebellious. No, I don't believe. And then when God hardens Pharaoh's heart, he says, I, I honor your decision and I'm going to reinforce your decision. So it makes it harder to believe next time. God honors your choice. Here's the danger. You keep hardening your heart and come to a place where you cannot believe. There's the danger. The usual opposition against the gospel followed. They manifested their hardened, hardened hearts, but spoke evil of the way. It's referring to Christianity, those on the way. Acts 9.2, 19.23, many other places. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. There's animosity against the gospel. When you become very specific, very narrow, very exclusive, you will not be tolerated. We're seeing it more and more in our nation. You can believe in anything. But if you say you believe in Jesus, you're not tolerated. You can say you worship Satan, and they'll, oh, great, that's good. You can tell them that you believe in reincarnation. Oh, that's great. But you mention the name of Jesus, and people go crazy. They did this before the multitude. Now notice the usual accommodation was made by Paul then. He departed from them and withdrew the disciples. There comes a time when you break. You don't cast your pearls to the swine, right? There comes a time, whether it be family members, friends, or perfect strangers, after we continue to share and they keep... And we know that we reach a line and they make it very clear that they don't want to hear anything more. You back off. You let it go. Pray for them. He reasoned daily in the school of Tyrannus. We know nothing else about him. But God used him. Paul, without doubt, worked early in the morning making tents. And then in the heat of the day, he probably used the building. Whenever he took their siesta. Everybody thinks the siesta comes from the Mexicans. It doesn't. It comes from the Romans, the sixth hour. It was the heat of the day and they rested. A lot of the world still does that. Europe and other places, South America, stuff like that. So for ministry to be effective, people must be preached to and taught the gospel consistently. That is why we have outreaches. That's why we reach the non-believers. That's why we go uptown. And that's why we focus on teaching the word of God to the saint. Those two things must be ongoing. The third characteristic is found in verse 10. It can be missed real easily. The work of God involves time. Very important. He says, And this continued for two years, so that all who dwell in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jew and Greeks. Paul the Apostle was committed for the long term. Paul labored for three months, as we've seen in the synagogue, and now two years here. His complete stay is three years. We find that in Acts 20.31. Too often today, preachers as well as people are looking for instant success. 
People are not interested in what's biblical. They're interested in what works and what brings in people. Because people multiply means money multiplied. And the motivation is absolutely carnal. And a dishonor to God. The salvation of people and the finances is God's department. He makes himself responsible for that, ladies and gentlemen. But everybody's going after the multitude and the methodologies that attract people at the cost of the gospel. There's the tragedy. The pastor and congregation are to take on, if you will, a sort of marriage commitment of dependability, honor, respect, and fidelity with one another. Too often the Christian dating in the church is too flaky. They carry over their mindset from the world. We discard husbands, wives, jobs, and churches. And we have no history with anybody. We're very shallow people. In this coming generation, there's going to be a lot of lonely, rich people. All they're going to have left is money. Don't be a spiritual teenager and bail out on everything. (laughs) You hang in there. And when you go through years and you're committed... You'll look back and you wouldn't change those experiences for all the money in the world. That goes for your marriage, that goes for people, your church, or anything else. Notice Paul the Apostle, through time, impacted the surrounding areas. He made the word of the Lord Jesus to be known to all who dwell in Asia. Certainly the tri-city of Lycus Valley, Colossae, Hierapolis, Laodicea, though he wasn't there. They were in the vicinity there as an outreach of Ephesus. The seven churches of the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and 3. Ephesus is named there. There are outreaches of Ephesus with certainty. Paul's going to tell us that he didn't have any other place to preach. That's why he's looking to Rome and Spain. (laughs) Incredible guy. Ephesus was a thriving city of trade, commerce, and people. Now notice the effect of both Jew and Greeks. The Jew were his people, the nation of Israel. The Greeks were his mission, as he was called the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul understood the value of time. Time allows people to see the consistency of the ministry. Time will reveal who a person is and what a ministry is. Time allows the Spirit of God to deal with people. It's a marriage. The ministry to be effective. The work of God must involve time. Time is very precious. Very valuable. The fourth characteristic is found in verse 11 and 12. The miraculous sovereign power of God was active. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hand of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Interesting. Look at verse 11. The apostle Paul was used as God's instrument. Always remember that. I am merely an instrument. Do not get enamored with the instrument. It's an instrument. God's the one that does the work. The source was divine from heaven. God, Theos, the creator, the eternal one. He's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present. He is not limited by anything. He can do anything that he wants. He worked, it says. He caused, he produced, as he will. When he willed. To whom he willed. As often as he wills. And no one can say, what are you doing? God worked unusual miracles, it says. 
Literally power of no ordinary sort, remarkable, being supernatural. Now the connection between this, as we're going to see as we move on, is that this is Ephesus. There's occultism. There's magic. There's necromancers. There's soothsayers. There's all kinds of... You've got the power of darkness working, and now you have the power of the gospel. And there's going to be a power encounter. The word for miracles is dunamis. There's no real word for miracle. It's just dunamis. The same one as in Acts 1.8. You, you shall receive power, dunamis, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Same word. Notice the servant was human on earth by the hands of Paul. Often in scripture, they laid hands. Jesus laid hands to heal. We anoint you with oil. We lay hands. Some of you get healed. Some of you don't. God is sovereign. There's nothing magical about the hands. Nothing magical about the oil. It's an obedience. God uses a man as he, he sees fit. Very important. We're just to be obedient to the word and to offer that benefit to the believer and allow God to be God. Look at verse 12. The method for healing through the apostle Paul was God's doing and not a pattern to follow. Very important. The handkerchiefs of Paul were sweatbands for the head. These without doubt came from his work making tents. How'd you like that? Here, put this sweaty thing on your arm and it'll heal you. <laughs> These again had no power in them. Why would God do that? God's sovereign. He does as He wills. The aprons were garments covering half of the front of Paul down to his waist, from his waist down at work. And Thayer's tells us that they were used to wipe perspiration in one's nose. How'd you like to lay that one on your you have a sore on your face. You see, the context is Ephesus. There's a lot of religious, pagan superstitions. And God is working. And He's touching people sovereignly. But there's no indication that the methodology had the power in itself. It never is. But people get caught up in it. Sickness, disease, and demons were cast out. The method for healing is never taught as a pattern or casting out demons or anything else. Jesus never healed anybody the same way twice. He heals them any way he wants. People will get on television and they'll take some of this stuff and they'll say, you know, you send me a little $10, $100 and I will send you this cloth, put your hand on it. You will be healed. And they, you know, they make all kinds of money. But here's the kicker. That someone who comes in faith can receive that cloth and God will heal him because God loves a sinner. But there's nothing magical about the cloth, you understand? Are you going to fall God? But when you start teaching that this will guarantee your healing, well, to you, you're a deceiver. You're a false prophet. You're a false teacher. God will do as He wills with the sinner who He loves. Then He'll deal with you later. Either now or later. Like the undertaker. Get you now or later. Your plot. One or the other. For ministry to be effective, the miraculous sovereign power of God must be active. That's necessary for the pastor to see that. So his eyes remain on the Lord. That's important for you to see that. So your eyes remain on the Lord and not me. You understand? It's very, very important. 
Pastor Xavier Reese, keeping the focus on the Sovereign God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, there's much more to this study to come next time, but if your schedule won't permit you to tune in, as always, you can pick up a copy of this message, and the title you'll want to ask for is Characteristics of an Effective Ministry. It's available on CD for just $4. And make sure you pass on this study to someone in your church or Bible study. So once again, the title to ask for is Characteristics of an Effective Ministry, or simply mention today's date. You can request your copy by writing Simple Truths. 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Or to make a request by phone, call 800-926-1485. Again, that's 800-926-1485. Or the address once again is Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And thanks for mentioning the call letters of this station when you get in touch. This helps us track the effectiveness of this ministry in your area. Next time, Pastor Xavier Reese explains seeking God's direction in your life comes down to following the lead of His Spirit. Hope you'll tell a friend and join us for more Simple Truths right here. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. www.calvarychapelpasadena.com 